according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are uh, in the book of Acts once more, uh, almost done with it now. We're going to wrap this up before you know it, but uh, let's go to uh, Acts chapter 27. Let's uh, again deal with this uh, voyage and then the imprisonment in Rome and uh, what what closes the book of Acts and uh, kind of an abrupt ending to the book of Acts and then reading between the lines a little bit to uh, determine what happens after Acts 28. In other words, if if an Acts 29 would have been written, what would it have said? <laughs> you know, what follows after this abrupt ending here to the book of Acts. So we'll talk about that as well in the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, and uh, the final clues that we have of the things that Paul admits to that uh, Luke does not, that Luke omits. All right, before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking God the Father to set aside our distractions, to humble us under the authority of truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before your throne of grace tonight, thankful for your truth, thankful for the position that we have in Christ, and Father, for these these abundant blessings that are ours, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Father, things that are just beyond comprehension, and yet your word describes them, and your promises give them to us, and so here we are with no right ourselves to be here, but in Christ, Father, we are your beloved Son in whom you're well pleased. And I thank you for that. So, Father, guide and shape our thinking tonight. Open the eyes of our understanding. and Bless the teaching of your word. I do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. The microphone is ready to, to go. There it is. All right. So our lead-off question. Let's take a few questions tonight. Whatever may be on your mind or puzzles that you're having follow-up to things we were dealing with on Sunday? Anything, uh, anything at all? Or not? This is awesome. You guys just know everything. That's great. That's an easy, uh, that makes it a great congregation to try to pastor when everybody knows everything. That works out well. All right. Well, then we'll return the microphone to its case. And let's go to Acts 27, or 28, I guess. Where did we leave off? There was a shipwreck, time on Malta. And uh, remember, Paul is uh, quite experienced at shipwrecks. <laughs> he wasn't much of a sailor, but uh, he was a great shipwrecker when, you know, when it comes to the different things. Second uh, Corinthians uh, 11, when we have that reluctant autobiography in there, he says three times that he'd been shipwrecked, and a night and a day he had spent in the deep. And uh, I don't know how you survive that length of time in the deep, uh, or how we understand that idiom, uh, but whatever the case, it's uh, extraordinary that he went through, and there's not another apostle of his generation that could uh, boast of such a such a resume, if you will, and that's the whole point of why he recorded that there in 2 Corinthians 11, was to demonstrate to the Corinthians uh, the uselessness of all that boasting in, uh, in those kind of things. So anyway, with three previous shipwrecks under his belt, plus who knows, maybe more that Luke omitted uh, in between 
then and then. But here in Acts 27 comes a shipwreck, and this is what happens. Uh, they're sailing for Rome, and we've seen uh, some of the journey there. And so I'll put the map back up here where we uh, left it off, I think, related to uh, that. So it should be slide 18, perhaps, if this works. And get past that. The defenses that he had in Capernaum. You remember it was in Capernaum that uh, he was imprisoned for two years, or in Caesarea rather, that he was imprisoned for two years. Then he got on board the ship. And at Myra, they had a change of ship, and most likely where Aristarchus uh, uh, departed. And then Luke and Paul continued on on a different ship from Myra around to Fair Havens. And then we discuss the nature of Luke and his disappearance, and uh, I believe researching for the Gospel of Luke and uh, those things. And then the appeal to Caesar resulted in a two-year house arrest in Rome. And we haven't not quite gotten there yet, so we want to deal with that in Acts 28. But there's some details in between, and we can talk about that. Here's the journey. And as they traveled, uh, Phoenix was the last safe port. And then as they departed from Phoenix, then all the storms that eventually take them to Malta. And that's where they're going to be shipwrecked until another, uh, you know, a rescue that comes from another passing ship. Uh, kind of curious to me as well, Sunday morning talking to Robert Jewell with his Navy background, including several voyages in the Mediterranean. And talking about how even in modern times with powered vessels, with nuclear-powered vessels and the capability to maneuver around storms and tides and all the rest, this is a part of the med that they do not like. (laughs) Even the modern Navy ships to this day don't like sailing between Crete and Africa or between uh, Crete and, and Corinth and things like that. Just rough winds, rough seas, and just nasty, even for the modern Navy to this day. So I I enjoyed that uh, quite a bit, talking to Robert on Sunday. All right, so uh, the the remainder of these details here, I think, in terms of Acts 27 and Acts 28, um, I recall we looked at the the Euroquilio wind there in verse 14, and they started throwing stuff overboard, and uh, none of that was helping. And then in verse 21, they had gone a long time without food, and Paul delivered his I told you so address. Uh, Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred the damage and the loss. And remember, every time Paul finds a solution to something, it always involves a speech. It involves him using a communication gift of some sort and uh, talking. But uh, they, they ignored him, remember? They, they felt that they were going to listen to the ship captain, they were going to listen to the sailors, and they were going to uh, ignore Paul. But nevertheless, he gets a vision. And he says in verse 23, this very night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted to all those who are sailing with you. So there is a divine promise directly from God himself that, uh, that they're going to make it, that Paul's going to make it, that they're going to make it. They have to respond by faith, however. And so we see this here. So therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe, God, that it will turn out exactly as I've been told. But we must run aground on a certain island. And uh, anyway, this gets described here. Uh, for, uh, when the 14th night came, 
as we were being driven about in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land. Something else that that Robert was telling me was that the depths are, are extremely variable, that the winds will blow the sand and the actual depths, they've got to constantly take soundings because even uh, you know a chart from not that long ago would have the wrong depth there because the, the sands on the bottom have uh, shifted so much. So here's what they're doing. They're taking soundings, found it to be 20 fathoms. A little further, another sounding, found it to be 15 fathoms. And uh, fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. So that's the best you can do. Close your eyes and wait for the best. And uh, as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship and let down the ship's boat into the sea on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the the bow, um, of course that's a lie, and Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. So... Soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it fall away. Anyway, uh, a lot of things here. Imagine Hollywood could probably uh, film this and and, uh, get something exciting for us to watch. Anyway, um, they are shipwrecked, and here's where they are. We get down to verse 39. Uh, They struck a reef in verse 41. And uh, the the ship begins to, to break up. Now, here's the soldiers and their plan, verse 42 the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners so that none of them would swim away and escape. You know, don't let a little thing like a shipwreck uh, become an excuse for anything. If you let a prisoner escape, then that's going to that's gonna reflect on you, right? You see how serious this is? It kind of points out, you know, how ridiculous it was for the Pharisees to tell those guards to lie about the disciples stealing the body uh, on the night that Jesus rose from the dead. Um, they're not even going to let a shipwreck excuse the, the loss of prisoners in uh, in this situation and uh, but the centurion wanting to bring paul safely through kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first to get to land so anyway, they make it to land and that gets us then to acts 28 and uh you know you ever survive a shipwreck and then get bit by something <laughs> you know what are the odds of that but it shows you that, uh, that God and His sovereignty has complete control over every single thing that's happening here. And um, working through the assumptions and the superstitions and the fears of, of unbelievers, I think there's a lot we can preach in this chapter that, uh, that get my attention anyway. So uh, chapter 28, where they find out that the name of the place where they are is called Malta. And that's where they are. We've already seen the map. And the natives showed us extraordinary kindness for because of the rain that had set in, and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. <laughs> you can imagine, here you survived 14 days of storm and shipwreck and everything imaginable, and now you're safely on land just in time for this thing to come out and bite you. And uh, when the natives saw the creature uh, hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, undoubtedly this man is a murderer, and though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. You know, real superstitious, superstitious people just assume this is the case. But he shook it off, shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. And uh, they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead, but after they waited a long time and seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a god. All right? So, you know, I mean, when you're clueless and you just start assuming this and assuming that and trying to find answers or just make something up, this is, is this not the world we live in? 
right? When, when we're watching a, an entire culture just who they just knew who was going to win the election and then it didn't happen and now they're completely unhinged and now they're trying to assume other things. And so there it is. Now, um, as far as the rest of this goes here on Malta, uh, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the leading man of the island named Publius, who welcomed him, us and entertained us courteously three days. Happened that in the that the father of Publius was lying in bed, afflicted with fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him. After he had prayed, he laid his hands on him and healed him. After this had happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and getting cured. They also honored us with many marks of respect. And when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all we needed. So, you know, the the manner of their arrival and the manner of their departure couldn't be more different, right, as far as that goes. And uh, interesting to see. And so this is what's going to be fresh in everybody's mind. This is going to be the testimony. I mean, look who this guy is. Look who this Paul guy is and and Luke and these, these companions. And uh, this is what's going to be told is these, these events here on Malta when they arrive in Rome. Uh, anything prior to that, they've got no idea. And in fact, his legal case, they've got even less of an idea. They, they, didn't even, they never got any kind of brief. They never got any kind of documentation. They don't even know why Paul's on trial. It's all uh, kind of a, a silly thing by the time he gets there. So um, verse 11, the end of three months, Again, a time frame you've got to plug into your overall calendar when you're reconciling New Testament chronology. At the end of three months, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship which had wintered at the island and uh, which had the twin brothers for its figurehead. And after we put it at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. From there, we sailed around and arrived at Regium. And a day later, a uh, south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Pudioli. And so now they're on the coast of Italy and they're able to walk from there up to uh, Rome. And so there we found some brethren. We were invited to stay with them for seven days. And thus we came to Rome. Now after all of this stuff, the apostle to the Gentiles finally lands on Italian shore. And what does he find? There's believers already there. (laughs) That's right. There's already brethren already there. See? And uh, there, there it is. All right. And uh, so the brethren, when they heard about us, came from there as far as the market of Appius and three inns to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. And when he entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier who was guarding him. Okay, And look at the freedom that he's, that he's provided. And while he's awaiting trial, I mean, yes, he's a prisoner, and yes, he's appealing to Caesar, but it's not going to be a speedy trial since they don't know anything about it and uh, aren't exactly sure how to proceed. And so this soldier, um, I imagine he's enjoying this quite a bit. I don't know if he's got a family to get back to anywhere, but he's probably enjoying this marvelous duty, um, listening to Paul, learning, maybe getting saved, who knows. And so uh, after three days, Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. And when they came together, he began saying to them, brethren, Though I had done nothing against the peop- our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they were willing to release me because there was no ground for putting me to death. But when the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any accusation against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you, for I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel." 
And so, again, it's kind of a recap of what we went through in chapters 22 through 26. Uh, then verse 21, they said to him, we have neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren come here and reported or spoken anything bad about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are for concerning this sect. It is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. Remember in the early days of the church, they thought Christianity was just some, you know, development, some sect of the Jews. It was like a Galilean outworking of something of Judaism, right? And so is this something that's going to start to thrive and compete with Pharisees and Sadducees and Essenes or some of the other uh, factions or sects within um, first century Judaism? And um, at least as far as Rome was concerned. And remember, they had been expelled from Rome. The Jews had been expelled from Rome in a previous decade. And then they were uh, permitted to return back in. All right. So, um, in any event, uh, tell us about this sect. We want to learn more because everything we heard is it's it's horrible, you know. So, so what do you think? And uh, boy, that's just you can imagine that's just an open invitation for Paul, you know. So they set a day for Paul, and they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. You know, talk about a great visitation policy. You know, this is a kind of a fun prison to be in. They came to him in large numbers, and and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God, trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. Now, if you think about it, this is not, you know, a a Billy Graham-style evangelism crusade. This is not telling unbelievers that, hey, you know, there is a God and, and so forth. He's talking to Jewish people, many of which are likely Old Testament believers themselves. Uh, they got saved looking forward to the coming of, of Messiah. And now he has a chance to use their own scriptures about what would happen to Messiah when Messiah comes and then to tell them about Jesus. And the thing is, is you, you know, you're putting two and two together to make four. Here's what the Bible says Messiah was going to be. Here's what Jesus was. You know, there you go. It's a no-brainer. Jesus is the Christ. And uh, so some were being persuaded now look at this verse, in verse 24, all right? I'm in Acts 28, 24. Some were being persuaded but by the things spoken, but others would not believe, okay? And this is a verse that we would plunge into for different studies, but in particular, related to patho and related to pastuo. We got some fundamental doctrines that, that we can glean from this verse right here related to what happens when we believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life. What happens when we believe in anything? How is it that we apply faith? What is it that we do in our soul when we trust, or when we, when we affirm, when we place our confidence in the faithfulness of an object? See, we can't do that for no reason, and we can't believe in nothing. It requires a persuasion. That there is information, right? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. That there is information communicated, and then we respond either being persuaded or not being persuaded. And what's interesting, too, is the volitional emphasis that's here. It doesn't say that they could not believe. It says they would not believe. And more often than not, when you're talking about disbelief and the rejection of the gospel, it is a volitional rejection that they choose not to accept what they're being told for whatever reason, all right? And uh, there's there's principles that, that we can glean out of that there. So some were being persuaded by the things spoken. 
And this, by the way, this takes a huge load off of us. <laughs> we can relax, right? And this is the secret of true evangelism that Schaefer wrote about. What we need to be doing is, is praying, intercessory prayer, waiting, watching, listening, allowing that persuasion to take place. And until it takes place, we just keep our mouth shut. We're not trying to talk anybody into anything. But when they're, when they're starting to be persuaded, when they're starting to be convicted, when they're starting to consider these things, when, it, when the Holy Spirit makes it clear to us that these people are, are now ripe to be persuaded, that he's already convicting and persuading them, that's our obligation then. Then we come alongside. Then we preach Christ. Then uh, we become fellow workers with the Holy Spirit in the, uh, the entire process. All right. So uh, some were and some weren't. Verse 25, and when they did not agree with each other, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers. <laughs> now you talk about a parting shot, you know, for this crowd that can't make up their mind and it seems to be divided. So he quotes scripture and he quotes Isaiah and he quotes the hardening of the heart and the blindness that was prophesied. So go to this people and say, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. And with the ears, they scarcely hear. They have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return. And I would heal them. So here's the quote from Isaiah chapter 6. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. And, uh, and so forth. All right, verse 29 is in dispute. But then we get to verse 30. He stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him. So you talk about a long legal process. Two years in, in Caesarea, now two more years in Rome. But he gets visitors, he gets people that can call upon him. He's not free to travel, but he's free to teach, he's free to write, he's free to, to welcome visitors. In his own rented quarters, was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. Unhindered, okay? Preaching the kingdom of God. Some people... Uh, reject the fact that kingdom preaching belongs in the church age but there it is paul uh, preached it for two years okay we preach it not as being present we preach it as being in heaven thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven thy kingdom come the kingdom is not yet on this earth but we still preach it right anyway preaching the kingdom of god teaching concerning the lord jesus christ with all openness unhindered okay cool now what well, there's no more now what? That's it, okay? That's the end of the book of Acts. That's the end of what I call Second Theophilus. That's a, it's a very abrupt ending, and you better believe that it sparks a bunch of debate and speculation and wondering, you know, did the scroll get cut off? You know, what, what happened? What's the next chapter? How does it, what, what happens next? All right, no, that is the last verse. In every manuscript we have, in every text tradition we have, that's the, the conclusion to the book of Acts unhindered interesting word all right preaching the kingdom of god and teaching concerning the lord jesus so for two years he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters then what okay well we can infer certain things um as it says here his appeal to caesar resulted in a two-year house arrest 
in my calendar, the one that I've adapted and made use of, it's from 60 to 62 A.D., all right? Um, that's a little bit flexible, plus or minus a year or two, um, as far as that goes. Uh, he spent his time preaching and teaching. There's no reference to him writing, but that's not unreasonable. He, he could write as well as preaching and teaching and receiving visitors and so forth. Uh, this is the traditional location for the authorship of the prison epistles. That This is the setting then for the composition of Philippians, Philemon, Colossians, and Ephesians. Um, although that has been debated, and uh, there are folks that would argue for a Caesarean location instead. I'm going to argue for an Ephesian imprisonment as it relates to Philippians at least. But I think uh, we can prove Philippians, I, I think we can prove all four of them in uh, the Ephesus uh, segment of Paul's, of Paul's life. Now, the abrupt ending to Acts likely points to its authorship at this time. As abruptly as it is, if something takes place for two years and you're eager to get it written about and you're eager to get it into somebody's hands, like, oh, maybe Theophilus, all right? You're eager to get this book into the hands of a high Roman officer because there is an immediate trial pending. And if, in fact, the word is finally received that Caesar will hear the appeal, um, then, hey, it's time to, to, to wrap up this book, right? So Luke puts the final verse in there, says he's been there two years. Could it have been much longer than two years? No, it wouldn't have been much longer at all. Had it been three years, Paul, uh, Luke would have written three years. <laughs> but he wrote two years, okay? And at the time that he wrote it, that was the length of Paul's stay. And so we, uh, we have the indication here that the trial was, was immediately following the uh, composition of the book. Why then, when the trial is over, okay, and he stands before Caesar, and uh, then what happens next? Okay, is this, what happens next? Does Caesar find him guilty or not guilty? Does Caesar release him or does Caesar chop off his head? (laughs) Okay, no, not yet. Not yet, as we understand it, not yet, okay? But as far as Acts goes, we don't know. Acts doesn't tell us. The Pauline epistles don't tell us. Peter's epistles don't tell us. Peter just says that Paul writes some good stuff and some of it's hard to understand. But Peter doesn't tell us anything about how Paul died because Paul wasn't dead yet when Peter wrote 1st and 2nd Peter. John doesn't tell us. 1st, 2nd, 3rd John doesn't tell us. All we have is the traditions that came down later about when Paul was beheaded, right? He couldn't be crucified, but he was beheaded as the mode of his death in Rome, right? And that's the tradition. So did it happen here? Is that what Luke should have written in in Acts chapter 29? All right. Let me put this back up. I haven't done this for a while. Um, Can you think your way through this yet? Are we at the point where... um, We'll pop that out. Here we go. Remember, we're still missing some books of the Bible. Okay? We've seen Galatians after the first missionary journey. Just working through the uh, the timeline here. Um, we've seen Galatians written after the first missionary journey and immediately before the Acts 15 conference. And then the second missionary journey where we saw the, the, the visit to Thessalonica and the writing of First and Second Thessalonians from Corinth. And then the, the third missionary journey with the headquarters being moved to Ephesus. And we saw the writing of First and Second Corinthians, the writing of Romans that took place there. So when you're thinking your way through Paul's epistles, 
We, we've covered a lot of them. What have we not covered yet? We haven't covered First and Second Timothy. We haven't covered Titus. We haven't covered the pastoral epistles. When do those get written? All right. And again, on the pastoral epistles, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, um, we, we're just assuming that they were written along the way somewhere, either in Rome or Caesarea, okay, or Ephesus, I'm going to argue for. So first missionary journey, second missionary journey, third missionary journey, trial in Jerusalem, sailing, shipwreck, Paul's trip to Rome, then what? The abrupt ending to the book of Acts, then what? All right. Well, according to this diagram, um, while in prison, Paul writes Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, Philemon. I've said before, that is the traditional date for, for all these prison epistles. Um, we're going to argue against it. Then what? Um, is that when he wrote First and Second Timothy? Is that when he wrote Titus? In other words, are they, are they the same time? But you'll notice there is a traditional release. Paul is released from Roman imprisonment and travels more. Okay? Because of this ending, the ending says he was unhindered. He was preaching for two years unhindered. It doesn't say that he was executed after that. It doesn't say that he served a third year. It doesn't say anything. That had he been beheaded at that time, it would have been a really good verse to put that in. <laughs> he preached for two years unhindered and then lost his head. Okay? But it, does, it doesn't say that. And so we are led to believe that he was freed nobody else could find him guilty nobody in Caesarea nobody I mean from from Felix to Festus to Agrippa it was always innocent 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 why are we having a trial and now he gets to Rome what's Caesar going to say there's no evidence there's not even a case that's been offered you know who's this fellow get out of here all right and so that's the that's the understanding so uh, on this chart then you'll notice uh, is the traditional belief that Paul is released from Roman imprisonment and travels some more. And we have then a fourth missionary journey, that he's released from Roman imprisonment and travels some more. So in that freedom then is when he writes 1 Timothy. He's not imprisoned in 1 Timothy. And when he writes Titus, he's not imprisoned in Titus. He wants Titus to come join him. And we're going to see some of those geographic references in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. It's not until 2 Timothy that he's imprisoned again. All right? 2 Timothy should be lumped in with, with Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon as a prison epistle. It is a prison epistle. He's in prison, and he's not expecting to live. In fact, he knows that he's finished his course. He knows that he's going to die. And he urges Timothy to come see him before it's too late. That's how 2 Timothy concludes. Okay? Far different from Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, where he's not sure how it's going to go. Might live, might die, might be released, might not, um, and those circumstances there. So on this chart then, he has a short release. He then writes the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Then he is rearrested. He returns to Rome. That's where he's imprisoned and martyred on his second Roman imprisonment. Not the Acts 28 Romans imprisonment, a second Roman imprisonment. It's not recorded in the book of Acts. So we will take a look at that.
So the abrupt ending to Acts likely points to its authorship at this time. Um, what then happens to Luke? Where then does Luke go? Luke continues to stay with Paul. And we glean this in the pastoral epistles. Example 12. The pastoral epistles contain numerous names, locations, and travel plans. Some names we're familiar with already. Names like Demas, names like uh, Crescens. No, Crescens we don't know yet. There are names that, that we're familiar with, but there's also new names we never heard of before. And so we're, we're left to wonder, well, why didn't we know these guys before? We know Timothy, we know Titus, we know Luke, we know Demas, but why don't we know some of these other names? Where did these guys come from? So numerous names, locations, and travel plans familiar and unfamiliar to Acts and the earlier Pauline epistles, yet unreconcilable with them. And trust me, people have tried. They have tried and tried and tried and tried to do what we've done here in the past three or four weeks. They've tried to, uh, I think we've done well with a framework from the book of Acts and plugging in the other epistles. Galatians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Romans, um, the prison epistles, Philippians, Philemon, Colossians, Ephesians. All right? And we've got a framework for all of those. What we can't plug into that framework is 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Although folks have attempted it. And we can discuss it. Um, I think that the best harmony is to allow ourselves to be content with a disharmony. And, and then we can have a reconstructed fourth missionary journey for Paul after Acts 28. All right? A fourth missionary journey. And it's not necessary for Luke to go back and revise the book of Acts or add a 29th chapter or, uh, or, or write a third Theophilus epistle. Okay. There's no need for a third Theophilus epistle. And that then takes us into some consideration of who was Theophilus and why did Luke write a gospel and the book of Acts? What was the purpose there? But um, we'll have to discuss that in uh, possibly in our Hebrews introduction. If in fact Hebrews is third Theophilus. <laughs> or if, not third Theophilus, but if Hebrews is the third book written by Luke that uh, Luke, uh, the Lucan authorship of Hebrews is, is more and more probable in, uh, in my thinking. All right. Um, so during this fourth missionary journey then, uh, in the mid-60s, say from 62 to 66, say for four years of freedom, what might Paul do for four years? Well, what did Paul do from 56 to 60? Okay. Paul did some amazing things from 56 to 60. That was, that was the height of his ministry. That was the, that was the, the, the crunch of, of, of Ephesus, right? That's when, uh, I believe, he wrote 1 uh, first, first Corinthians. That's where he trained most of the men he trained. That's where, I believe, he wrote the, the prison epistles and those things there. Well, from 62 to 66, could have done all kinds of traveling. Did he make it all the way to Spain? He kept talking about going to Spain. In fact, that was his stated goal, was when he left Rome, Rome could be the headquarters that would fund his expedition to Spain. Yeah, church history says he did. And in fact, First Clement, the earliest of all the um, extra-biblical early Christian literature, First uh, Clement records that he did. And so we'll talk about that as well. In fact, we can look at that now if you'd like. First uh, Clement records Paul's successful ministry to Spain. 
And so as we start to look at these details, what I want us to think about is uh, in particular First and Second Timothy, because Ephesus is so center stage in First and Second Timothy. We have clues related to Ephesus that, that we have to either harmonize or allow to be dis- disharmonized, to allow to be at odds with the Ephesus we know from other books. And that's the biggest clue. Ephesus, I think, is the key to the whole New Testament as far as the sequence and the chronology is concerned. Because we have the Ephesus of the 40s, the Ephesus of the 50s, the Ephesus of the 60s, the Ephesus of the 90s, and uh, probably the Ephesus of the 70s or 80s, as, uh, as, as it's described in, in 1 John. Okay? Ephesus of the 90s as it's described in Revelation and the pastor who left his first love and the circumstances there. The first message in, in Revelation 2 is to the church at Ephesus. And so we've got a snapshot of Ephesus there related to the 90s, that decade. First Timothy is with reference to the 60s when Timothy's the pastor there. When Paul was, uh, was there, it was the 50s. Okay? All right. Um... Romans 15, look at Romans 15, we'll see some things here. And these, by the way, we've looked at them already, but only in the context of Paul's third missionary journey. I think it's useful to think, to to review these verses here. So when he's in Corinth, writing the book of Romans, he says in Romans 15, 22, For this reason I have often been prevented from coming to you, but now with no further place for me in these regions. No further place for me in these regions. I mean, you've got to realize when the door is closed, when your gift, your ministry, your effects, everything God has suited you for no longer can operate in these regions. Right? He's a pioneer. He doesn't build on another man's foundation. He goes to places that haven't been hit yet. He breaks new ground. That's his, that's his passion. That's his calling. And he knows that Greece, Macedonia, Philippi, Asia Minor, Ephesus, all those regions, they're grounded. There's churches there. There's trained pastors there. He's ready now to, to head west, right? Go west, young man. So, I've had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you. You know, it's going to cost money to get to Spain, and you've got to live, and you've got to, you know, who's going to fund the trip to Spain? Well, Paul's hope is the Roman church will become a new missionary headquarters, like Antioch had been, like Ephesus became, and now Rome can become the next missionary headquarters to send forth a team into Spain. For I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. Didn't realize it would be two years in house arrest, (laughs) prison and trial, but that's what it ends up being. So his plan is Rome and then Spain. But now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. And this is Again, he's fixated on Jerusalem. And the thing that kept him from going to Rome was his insistence that he had to be the one bringing those funds to Jerusalem when he should have just entrusted it to Titus and whoever and then uh, gone to Rome in the first place, I think. All right. So um, as far as the rest of this goes, you'll notice um, 
I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. Verse 26, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Now, why is that? Why am I stressing that tonight? Because we're about to begin next week, we're going to begin a, a, a series in Philippians. And that's a Macedonian church. And so all of this is, has to be connected, has to be part of our background, or we're going to misapply the Philippians' emphasis. Because here's the, the Macedonian churches, including Philippi, and they are raising a monster contribution to send to Jerusalem. Funds of, of an of a indescribable amount are being brought together here. Macedonia and Achaia, because now Corinth is on board which we learn in 2 Corinthians. Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do so. And so, uh, again, verse 28, Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. So, how many times have we heard this? I'm going to Spain, I'm going to Spain, I'm going to Spain, and you guys are going to help me get there. You guys are going to help me get there. Okay? Because that's Paul's passion at this point. That's, that's every focus is on his way to Spain. Right? It's like James Garner on his way to Australia. You ever see that movie? Support your local sheriff? No? Oh, you got to. Okay. Because he's just passing through on his way to Australia. For the whole movie, that's the running joke. And I'm not going to give it away. It's a spoiler if I tell you. But, um, but that's... That's the, that's, the, that's the deal there. He's on his way to Australia. Paul's on his way to Spain. I'm telling you, I'm on my way to Spain. I'm on my way to Spain. Okay? And so this becomes then, I think, one, part of the greatest evidence against the Roman location for the authorship of the, of the prison epistles. Because when we get into Philippians, Paul is saying, man, I can't wait. As soon as I'm released, I'm going to come see you. Right? And so if he goes from Rome to Philippi, what's he doing? going the wrong way to, to Spain, okay? Because, uh, you know, from, from Rome to Philippi over here, that's, that's not on the way to Spain. That's the opposite. That's the wrong way to Spain, see? Because his passion is to leave Rome and go to Spain. And we believe he does so. And, and not only the legends and traditions say so, but extra-biblical literature of the first century says so. We'll discuss that also. And so uh, this is the passion here. All right, so Romans fifteen twenty eight, boom, Spain. When I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. All right, let's look at First Clement. Did I make this clickable? I was supposed to. Eh, looks like I didn't. Well, what is wrong with me? All right, First Clement five five. See if I can get there. Here we go. First Clement 5 5. I even colored it for you. How about that? All right. Now, why am I quoting First Clement? It's not Bible. It's not God breathed. It's not inspired. But it is very early 
among all Christian writings. In fact, it's, it's earlier. It probably 95 AD means that it was written a year before John wrote Revelation. <laughs> okay? So it's written while the canon is still open. doesn't belong in the canon. But it is contemporary with the Apostle John. It's contemporary with first, second, first century Christianity. And even better, guess what? It's written from Rome, where they have a lot of knowledge of what happened to Paul. And it's written to Corinth. Okay? A bunch of knucklehead believers that need to be corrected for some stupid stuff they're doing. Okay? Sound familiar? Sounds like 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and a church that still, three decades later, is having hang-ups. So, um, as we read these traditions and as we read this here... Um, We've got some other things here. Um, to pass from the examples of ancient times, let us come to those champions who live nearest our time. Let us uh, set before us the noble examples which belong to our own generation. Because of jealousy and envy, the greatest and most righteous pillars were persecuted and fought to the death. Let us set before our eyes the good apostles. There was Peter, who because of unrighteous jealousy endured not one or two but many trials, and thus having given his testimony went to his appointed place of glory. That is the earliest testimony to Peter's martyrdom. Notice it does not include Rome. It does not include being crucified upside down. It doesn't include all the other legends that sprang up around the, the uh, church at Rome that had to build their mythology around uh, Matthew 16 and the, the rock. <laughs> okay, That came later. I personally believe he died in Babylon. I don't think he ever made it to Rome. But that's my belief. All right. And then there's Paul. Because of jealousy and strife, Paul, by his example, pointed out the way to the prize for patient endurance. And really, Clement falls under Paul's heritage for training, for for background, for geography, and all the rest. Um, After he had been seven times in chains. Wow. Paul himself said uh, far more than all the rest of them, right? Imprisoned far more, far more imprisonments. That was the expression. In far more imprisonments. Well, here we're told that the final number ended up being seven. Seven imprisonments. And uh, he had been driven into exile, had been stoned, had been preached in the east and in the west. He won the genuine glory for his faith. And notice that order from east to west, okay? Because he started in the east, Antioch, and the deserts of Arabia, and then to the west. Remember, he said he had no further place in these regions. He was done with the east. He's headed west. And uh, having taught righteousness to the whole world, and having reached the farthest limits of the west. And there's an idiom for you. <laughs> The farthest limits of the West. So how far is that? Okay, well, how far West did they know about? Okay, they didn't know about America, obviously, but but the farthest limits of the West. And this is where the different traditions are because he he declared he wanted to go to Spain, and that's clearly West. Um, But there also are the understandings that even through the Straits of Gibraltar, beyond Spain, out into the Atlantic, and then up into England. And the idea, because the Romans knew about England. How many times did the Romans invade England, right? And so there are legends and traditions that Paul made it all the way to the the coast of England and uh, finished there. But clearly Spain is in the picture. 
as far as this goes, having reached the farthest limits of the West. Finally, when he had given his testimony before the rulers, he thus departed from the world, went to the holy place, having become an outstanding example of patient endurance. All right, so this is the the testimony there of Clement in his letter to the Corinthians. All right, so let's get back to the pastoral epistles and see the clues that we have here. All right, 1 Timothy, Titus, and 2 Timothy. That's not in our Bible order, but that's in the chronological order. So that's how we want to consider it. 1 Timothy, Titus, and 2 Timothy. And let's see, can we put this in a framework? How do we relate this? 1 Timothy. All right. And we don't have to look far. We get to verse 3 and we have the geography that's mentioned for us here in 1 Timothy. Um, But there's other names that we have to pay attention to and other people that are worth looking at as well. All right. So um, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior in, in Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. So we have the first of what are they called the pastoral epistles. He's writing a personal letter, not to a church, but to a person. He's writing to a pastor. It's different from Philemon. Philemon is written to a person rather than a church, but it's considered a prison epistle. This is considered a pastoral epistle. And uh, all the information on how to, how to run a church, how to operate until he comes. Now here's a clue. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia... Remain on at Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than the furthering of the administration of God, which is by faith. All right. So this is our clue for the writing of 1 Timothy. He urged Timothy to remain on at Ephesus, all right, to take the reins of the Ephesian ministry. The reins of the Ephesian ministry, which is not only a church, but a training ministry. And that's going to come across also not only in 1 Timothy, but in 2 Timothy. He's going to be told, the things that you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these things entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That powerful 2 Timothy 2.2 comes in this this, uh, setting, right? Paul's instructions to Timothy. Paul doesn't believe he'll ever go back to Ephesus. We read that in chapter 20, remember? When he said farewell to the, to the Ephesians elders, he believed he would never again see their face on this earth, their faces on this earth. But he urged Timothy to take the reins of that, of that lampstand. And so, um, how do we read this now in verse 3? That that was the occasion when Paul sat down with him face to face and heart to heart and said, you know, I think this missionary training center is going to be your greatest ministry. This is going to be where you're going to be. And it may not have been immediately, okay? Because the events we're describing, the events we're describing in verse 3, I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, that's, you know, that's 59, that's 58, 59 AD. And it may be years later that he's writing this epistle, but that was the key event. That was the key admonishment. And certain things like that you just never forget, okay? My last conversation with Glenn Carnegie, I'll never forget. And, uh, and, and what he urged me to do and, and what he 
said uh, he really felt that, that I ought to do. And then he said, we'll talk about this more when I get back. And he never came back. He got on a plane for a conference in Spokane, and, and uh, that's when the Lord took him to heaven. See? And so uh, the, the, the personal exhortation that he gave me as far as operating a training ministry and training men for, for, the, uh, for uh, becoming pastors and all these things, you, know, you don't forget stuff like that. And Timothy's not going to forget this urging from the Apostle Paul. It says, uh, you know, you've been my companion. You're not going to be traveling with me for the time being. You've got your own ministry and step out and do this. You know, Luke is going to go with him. By the time 2 Timothy gets written, Luke is the only one that's with him. Because he says, only Luke is with me. All right. So Ephesus becomes Timothy's headquarters. Ephesus becomes Timothy's deal. So how do we, how do we correlate that? How do we harmonize that with the book of Acts? Can we plug that in anywhere in Acts up through chapter 28? I don't think we can. All right. Can we plug that into the setting of 1 John when the apostle John is there? And by the way, what happens to Timothy running the training school, running the church, doing all this stuff, when all of a sudden here comes the apostle John into town? Does he lose his job? Does he pull rank? Does the apostle take Yeah, How does that work? Well, we're talking about different decades. We're talking, Timothy's long gone by then. Timothy was there in the, in the 60s. John gets there in the 80s. Okay? And so we realize that this picture of Ephesus is, is very helpful for us. Especially to have this picture here in the 60s. To, to disconnect it from anything else we understand from the 50s or the 40s or the, or the 80s or the 90s. All right. So um, certain men, you know who they are. Well, we don't, but Timothy does. Um, teaching strange doctrines. Who are these guys? What are they teaching? And myths and endless genealogies and all the speculation. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So with that as the goal of our instruction, do you really think Timothy is the pastor who left his first love? <laughs> no. Okay? Which, by the way, if the preterists are right, then Timothy was the pastor who left his first love. Because they, they try to shove Revelation into the, into the 60s. They try to shove the writing of Revelation before the destruction of Jerusalem. So that they can claim that all of that tribulation stuff was fulfilled by the, the, the destruction of Jerusalem. And that's just a, that's a horrible mess when they do that. So it's a train wreck. All right. Now, um, as far as these other things go, uh, for the rest of, that's our geographic reference there. Um, but we have some names that are mentioned further down in chapter one, um, verse 18, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you. Well, here's a Luke and omission. What were those prophecies? What was the prophetic utterance? Why did they take a 10-year-old boy with them on the second missionary journey? I believe because there was prophetic utterance that says, take that 10-year-old boy with you on this second missionary journey. Because he's got a destiny. Fight, so fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander. And do, are those names familiar? Well, Alexander was one of the, the uh, opponents in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19 when uh, the silversmith was starting the riot and, and the city clerk had to come in and, and quell everything. 
I believe it could have been the same Alexander, probably was the same Alexander, but there were a lot of Alexanders back then. Uh, Hymenaeus? Who's Hymenaeus? When did he show up in the book of Acts? Anyway, these two characters, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. (laughs) What does it take for a believer to be removed from a pastor's shepherding authority and protection and to be handed over to Satan and say, well, do what you want. They're going to learn that way because they're not going to learn the easy way. All right, so there's clues. There's names that are mentioned there. And how do we harmonize those names with Acts? We can't. Not easily. Alexander maybe, but not Hymenaeus. And, and it's best to take 1 Timothy in a post-Acts 28 context. All right, over to chapter 2. Uh, I don't think anything there jumps out at me. Over to chapter 3. We've got the requirements for overseers, the requirements for deacons and the deaconesses um, and these things. And then notice, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed. So does this sound like he's in prison? No, he's not in prison, but he's busy. He's elsewhere. He's looking forward to seeing Timothy again when the occasion presents itself. But in case I'm delayed, I write so you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. And I think what this betrays, I think that the description of the overseers and the deacons and how do you operate in the church of God, I think this is Paul presenting to Timothy in the pastoral epistles the the groundwork for for how the church needs to move on once the apostles are gone. This is like a a farewell message in preparing the church for the post-apostolic era. Here's how you operate when you don't have an apostle just ordering things around. You've got to appoint elders, you've got to appoint overseers, you've got to appoint deacons, and you've got to operate in a local church. All right. And then the mystery of godliness, a great hymn there in verse 16. And then beware that there's tough days in front of us. Chapter 4, apostasy is on the way. And... um, Let no one look down on your youthfulness. There it is in verse 12. Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness. It's a huge clue. We've got to do something with it. We've got to determine what's the date of this. Is it 64, 65? Is it right before Paul's death? Is it, well, we, we date that in 66 or 67. So was this in, say, 64? So how old is Timothy in 64? How old were you in 64? Never mind. Um, if, if he joined Paul in 50, as a, as a 10-year-old, he was born in 40. So now he's 24. How much older, I mean, is that, is that too old? To be despised for his youth? You know, he could be late 20s and still be despised for his youth. Particularly if Ephesus has a lot of older believers. Remember, there was a whole crowd there. There were Old Testament believers that Paul brought into the church age. They were considerably older. All right. Well, do not neglect the spirit. This is the last thing we'll have to dismiss here. It says, uh, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Timothy was ushered into the church age. 
and uh, the prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands. On his ordination day, prophetic utterance said, this is what's in front of you, Timothy. All right, well, there's more, but we'll have to wrap it up here. Um, there's um, more names that are mentioned. Um, and then we've got to move to Titus and Second Timothy. So we'll, we'll deal with those on Sunday. And I think that should wrap us up. I think with one more good class, we can finish this slide and, uh, and then we can memorize the chapters in the book of Acts and think our way through. These were supposed to all load at once. Here we go. All right. And we can learn chapter titles. We can think our way through the book of Acts. We can put the book of Acts in a framework and then put uh, Paul's epistles and travels on that framework and, uh, and be equipped to handle the introduction to Philippians. All right. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for Timothy. Thank you for the pattern, Father, the pattern of Paul and Timothy. It's just it, it lays it out there as the model. And uh, it's the model that was followed with, with Ralph and me. It's the model that was followed with me and Dan. It's the model that's just a, a marvelous uh, provision that you've made. And, and we're so excited to, to think of uh, Pastor Dan and the new ministry being launched at Corpus Christi Bible Church. And in all these things, Father, it's a, it's a wonderful reminder of how powerful you are, how faithful you are in the glorious things you accomplish, even while using such imperfect tools. Father, thank you for being so faithful. I thank you and I praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.